All right, take your Bibles. Let's go to the Psalms, and particularly Psalm 51. We've got two passages we want to look at this morning in our study of how to nurture humility. And uh, we will be in Psalm 51 because I want to talk this morning about the two particular problems that really can be so easily traced back to the corruption that is within us because in the very first sin in the garden, these two problems showed up massively. And they are problems that plague us all the time and, and they're rooted so clearly and utterly in pride that whenever you see the evidence of them, you, you know that's what it is. There's no need to make or to try to make any kind of excuse. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned, it was an act of defiance. And the first thing that they did, instead of moving toward God, they went from God in an effort to not only self-atone, but to hide their sin. And so I want to talk, first of all, about the tendency we have in pride to hide sin rather than unearth it, rather than openly confess it, but to duck and cover, to evade, to deceive, to go around um, telling a different narrative than the truth, um, to try to hide our guilt. And then the twin problem is that when someone sins against us, to hold them to a standard we're unwilling to live by. In other words, we don't forgive. So I want to talk about these two particular manifestations of pride and then how we cultivate humility from both this text and uh, another text on the other principle. Now just to sort of, again, hit the runway here, we have been in this study which was launched out of Jesus' ministry in Luke 14 as he's on his way to Jerusalem to die for the sins of all who will ever believe in him. And, and on his way, he's merciful in that he is still preaching grace and preaching the gospel, and he's pointing out what keeps men from him, and you remember he had been pointing out ways that Israel was in a state of blindness. I had read earlier in Hebrews that they never took the knowledge that they were given and combined it with a heart of humble faith. In fact, if you sit here today and you listen to yet another sermon and if you have online resources and podcasts and other sermons you listen to, it will matter you little. It will do nothing for you except be interesting stuff in your digital files if you do not combine what you're learning with humble faith. Israel chose not to do that. They nurtured instead unbelief. Unbelief is defiance. Unbelief is pride. Now, it manifests itself in a whole lot of ways that Jesus pointed out at this particular time that we were studying in Luke 14, but nonetheless, it goes to its central problem, and that is a defiance against the Creator. That is what pride is. And you remember that the very fact that Jesus shows up somewhere, it starts to manifest the pride in those around Him. It's just like when you, as a Christian, mention the name Jesus Christ, people bristle. Why do they bristle? Because they don't like... Uh, the reality that the story of Jesus is unassailable, the character of Jesus has never been overthrown, he still is saying to the world, which one of you convicts me of sin and no one can. No one can legitimately find in this historical figure some 2,000 years ago who rose from the dead a single sin. He is holy and righteous. So the moment he shows up, people who don't want to live for Christ or for God or to believe in God 
will chafe at that and begin to hate it. That's the first manifestation of pride, when you don't like holiness around, when you don't like the Word of God around, when you don't like to have people around who are the real deal when you're not. This was the Pharisees' problem. They knew they weren't the real deal, and Jesus was, and they didn't like it. And then pride, we saw, um, always tries to connive and do something clever to sort of expose someone else, but they end up getting exposed. And that's exactly what happened. Pride always sets its own trap. God catches you in your cleverness. You think you're going to get one up on somebody, and the rug gets pulled out from underneath you in providence in circumstances because you were blind to what was in your side view. You couldn't see that you were setting yourself up for your own demise. And pride always does that as it manifested itself in the Pharisees. They were selective with Scripture. We saw that. They sought the praises of men. We saw that. They gave, but they gave with ulterior motives. We saw that. And Jesus says, it's blinded you to me. And so what we've done is sort of pull ourselves out of that for a bit and ask the question, how do we nurture humility? And we've been just giving you a list of principles, the first of which was to acknowledge every day, all day, that God is absolutely the Lord of all things. He's Lord of your soul. We just sang it in that song. He owns every soul. He is the Lord of every man. The Lord of every man. To nurture humility in your heart is to humble yourself under the reality that you're never out from under his sight. We just read it again, Hebrews 4.13. All creatures are open to him. He sees everything we think, everything we do, everything we say. And it is humbling to submit to the lordship of Christ knowing that you will answer to him. That nurtures humility at its most foundational level. The second thing we talked about, the second principle for nurturing humility was to understand why Jesus hung on the cross. To, in other words, put yourself there. To learn everything scripture says about the necessity of the cross and the depth of your sin that put Christ there and held him there. And to understand the, the depth and weight of his humility in coming out of love to pay our penalty and to understand the wrath that was poured out on him though he was innocent, to understand that it led to the death of the Son of God, how profound it, it, a work it does in the human heart to learn everything Scripture says about why Christ had to go. The church's problem today is it's full of pride because it sees the cross as merely a, an humanitarian act an example of human sacrifice rather than an atoning work before a holy God whose wrath must be satisfied. And so we've gotten the gospel all wrong because of it. We're, we're a church full of pride, an evangelicalism rather, full of pride. Thirdly then, we nurture humility not only by this wonderful submission to the sovereignty of God, not only by learning everything about the cross, but also opening our heart then to the Spirit's work. So as we hear the word, we're not to make excuses or let unbelief rise up in our hearts. We're not to be skeptics. We're to submit to his word. You want answers to his word? Believe it. Faith is what comes first. Understanding comes when you trust God, when you trust what he said merely because he said it, only because he said it, ultimately because he's the one who revealed it. That is what opens up the heart and mind. People say all the time, well, I have to be convinced. No, you don't. 
you are commanded to believe. You're commanded to believe God. That command is on every creature who's ever lived. Every human being who's ever lived is commanded to believe God. The moment you know in your heart that your conscience is burdening you about having to answer to him, if you belong to some pagan nation and didn't know the scriptures, but especially every time you know the scriptures, hear the scriptures, this is God's revelation, you're commanded to believe. There's no such thing as a skeptic who isn't already in unbelief, regardless of whether he thinks he needs answers to this question or that question or not. You want answers? Come to the scriptures in faith. God will open your eyes to wonderful things. And now we come to that next principle, and we, we learn of it um, most profoundly from this song of David in the Psalms, Psalm 51. The principle is this. When you fail, you're to seek God's mercy. In other words, if you want to nurture humility, then when you fail, unearth it, confess it. Proverbs 28, 13 says, if you conceal your sin, you will not prosper. But if you confess and forsake your sin, you find compassion. We, we sometimes encapsulate that truth in this statement. Whatever you cover, God will uncover. But whatever you uncover, God will cover. So if you uncover your weakness and your frailty and your sin and your guilt, God brings compassion and covers over those dynamics with both the tools to learn how not to do that sin anymore, with the great grace that covers the guilt of it, and with the strength and resources to move forward in, in a new vitality, even if it involves consequences and chastening. But if you cover, you won't prosper. Why? Because God has to uncover it, and when he uncovers it, it's going to be with battles you didn't have to face, scars you didn't have to incur. And so this first principle, which, which by the way, is a fundamental tendency of pride, and that is that we hide sin, we run from culpability, and we run from having to face guilt. We try to silence it, we try to suppress it. Adam did it in the garden, he tried to run. Here you have David, and he's written a song for Israel to sing. He's given it to the choir director, and this would be a, a perpetual reminder for the people of God of this all-important matter of an open confession to God when we fail. An open confession to God and to others whom we fail when we fail. If you want to nurture humility, here's where it begins right here. And notice here a few things about humility from this psalm. You remember this psalm came because David, as king, uh, got puffed up in his pride, as was often the case with kings in Israel. He was puffed up in his pride, and though he is a man after God's own heart, as his life testified, it is also true that he was just like us, prone to weakness and frailty and pride. And in his kingship, in the success of it, in the pride of it, he went outside of the bounds. And on the heels of it, as Psalm 32 indicates, he walked around the palace halls for some months trying to work this through some other way and he became more and more blinded to his pride and then ultimately Nathan the prophet spoke to him a little story. David judged the story 
and talked about the consequences of the crime perpetrator in the story, and Nathan said, but I'm, I'm telling this story because I'm telling you that this is you. I'm just telling you about you. And in that moment, by the power of the gospel and the grace of Christ, he was repentant. He was broken. But notice what comes first. What comes first is this statement, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Here is sub-principle number one. Humility feeds on mercy. Humility feeds on mercy. If you want to nurture humility, you, you do it at one place and one place only, the throne room of God's mercy. You come to God when you have failed. The pride that took you into failure will give way to humility as it feeds on his mercy. Here's our problem. We, we often, when we are convinced and convicted of a sin, we try to calm ourselves and comfort ourselves, not by running to God for mercy, but by trying to find mercy in other places, trying to find it from other human beings, trying to compare ourselves with others who've failed more, and we feel some sort of comfort there, trying to dress up our sin as we continue in it, trying to make it better than it is, less, less consequential than it is. We even try to uh, crank up religious activities so that we sort of get close to what it felt like to be around God and therefore feel some sort of splash of what we hope is mercy. David knows that mercy comes from one place and when you've sinned, your only hope for survival is the graciousness and mercy of God. David is saying, I will survive this if I am granted divine immunity, mercy. That is what he's after here. And notice, according to thy loving kindness. Or in other words, in proportion to it. In proportion to the endless supply of mercy and grace that is part of your character, that's how I want you to pardon me. That's what I know I need. Let mercy and pardon flow from your attributes of love and kindness in proportion to your loyal love. I know you're loyal to your character. I know you're loyal to manifesting redemption and forgiveness and mercy. And so according to what you want to manifest in your perfections, lavish that on me. It's as Spurgeon said, make my case an epitome of all thy gentlest attributes. That's right, Lord, make me an example of what you're like in this weakness that I have. That's right. Now, we notice also what David does not say here. As we think about how humility feeds on mercy, you notice what David does not say, at least out of the gate here. There's no request for easier circumstances or less pressure, right? He is not saying, if I had easier circumstances, if I had an easier life, if I had uh, less pressure in my life, Lord, I, I don't know why you would imagine that I could stand in that particular temptation if you've put me in these kinds of circumstances. If you could reduce the pressure a bit. You, you see none of that here. There's not even a, 
a request for divine comfort in the sense of comfort the way I want to feel comfort. He's not saying to God, make me feel the way I want to feel. Make me feel comfort the way I want to feel comfort. No, he wants one thing to comfort him, mercy. It's like Psalm 119, 76, may your loving kindness be my comfort. That's right. All I need from you, Lord, is to know that you're a gracious God and that you're a merciful God and that I can come to you for that. So there's no request for particular creature comforts or a change of circumstances or less pressure. Nor, by the way, is there a request for extra supernatural strength as if God had not given enough. You know, sometimes we do that. you, You don't want to confess some sin or weakness to somebody or to God and your complaint in your heart is that somehow when you went to the resources, it wasn't there. People will say that to me often. Pastor, I've tried that. You know, I I know that's what that passage says, but I get in the temptation, I've tried that. And what you're essentially saying is that I have the supernatural revelation of Christ I have the spirit who wrote it, who lives inside of me and takes it and renews my mind in it by his promise. He's never less than he says he is in his word. The word says it's sufficient, but in my one case, I didn't have enough from you, God. David doesn't express any of that at all. He's not even saying, Lord, pardon me based on human weakness. I'm only human. You ever been tempted to say that to God? I'm only human. I mean, I'm only human. Do you, do you know how much pressure you put on me? Do you, do you see what you put me through? I mean, this trial, this test, another test, another piling on, Lord. They say they come in threes. How about thirties? Wow, Lord, I am only human. Now, you might say that to your peers. Hey, I, I blew it, but I understand we're only human. And your peers might even say it back to you. That's true. We are Mere dust, we are only human. But you don't see any of that here with even David. No pardon based upon human weakness. None at all. There's also something else missing here in his confession that you don't see, which we tend to do. Have you ever noticed that when you sin and you're called to confess it before God, but you don't want to, if you do have to be exposed in some sin that you've committed against someone or against the Lord. Isn't it true that in your heart you you actually begin this process of comparing so you can get some credit for all the good things you do and and over, you know, sort of balance out the weakness? We we do that. And often that leads to you having the process picked on. You know, you want to pick on the process, how your sin was exposed. And so then you want to say things that provide conditions for how someone would come to you. One of which is, if you're going to come to me and point out a weakness and a frailty, if I'm going to have to expose my sin rather than hide it, then you're going to have to qualify it with a thousand other ways I've been obedient and pretty decent. And then you can point out this ever so tiny area of weakness. And so we set up conditions. Notice there's none of that here with David. David doesn't say, Lord, I need credit for all the ways I've been king and I've been a man after your own heart and and I've not failed. I, I realize this is a big failure and I realize this is a big problem. But Lord, I mean, you say I'm a man after your own heart. That's your testimony about me. Don't I get some balancing credit from that? There's none of that here. 
Why? Because David knows that if you're going to nurture humility and rid yourself of the pride that leads to such blindness and sin, it feeds on mercy, not self-atonement, not self-pity, not conditions. Humility feeds on mercy. You run to God for that. No excuses. Notice also something about humility here. Humility increases in your heart with ownership, specific ownership of your sin. Notice verse 1, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. And, and again, we've pointed this out, but he, he, it's, it's like he talks about sin from, from about every term you can use for it. He calls it iniquity. He calls it transgression. He calls it sin. He calls it evil. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before you. I've done what's evil in your sight. My mother brought me forth in sin, verse 5. I was brought forth in iniquity. He's not clean, verse 7 indicates. He needs to be clean. There's these terms that he is putting out there to take full ownership. Even as king, he's not even exercising that Authority you'd be tempted to exercise against the prophet in his life. Hey, Nathan, silence. I'll not hear you on this again. Which he could have done and monarchs did all the time. In fact, the very tryst that he ended up having with Bathsheba was done all the time by kings. This was nothing among monarchs. But he uses every term he can. This is, this is because he's nurturing humility in his heart. If you're going to nurture humility, just, just start to use the terminology the Bible uses and don't use any other terminology of it. We've talked about it in terms of self-indicting. That's a term we use a lot. Um, it, it's this very thing David is doing. Transgressions. He calls them transgressions. Crossed the boundary. I went beyond the boundary. David said, I did that. He calls it sin. Uh, it is Evil, clear-cut evil. Those were my actions, he said. I did what was evil, clear-cut, bad, unrighteous. And it was altogether wrong, through and through wrong. That's the term for iniquity. It was in every way sinful. And I'll need to be thoroughly washed from the thorough staining that I have. Notice he also says, verse 7, Purify me with hyssop, I shall be clean wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. He needs a washing, he needs a cleaning. He needs a purifying of his life. You say, well, isn't he already a believer in God? Yes. Isn't he already redeemed by faith? Yes, he's a child of God. There's no question about it. But, but you know as well as I do that even if you come to Christ and you are cleansed from dead works so that you're never condemned for them, you remember that in the upper room, Jesus gave the illustration to Peter, look, if, if you don't let me wash your feet on a daily basis, if you don't have this daily cleansing that restores us to intimate fellowship because you, you've got all this guilt on your conscience from failure, not because you're going to be condemned, you're not fearing condemnation, but you want a walk with me that is intimate and fresh and clean and free. You know, I feel that way when... I'm with my kids, and when they were growing up, they would sin against me as a parent. They, they don't cease to be my child, but they still need to come, and there's a severing of the, fellow, the sweetness of our fellowship until they acknowledge that they need to change their ways, and, and 
we enjoy that sweet fellowship of that daily uh, seeking uh, pardon and mercy for having sinned against people and against God. That's what you and I do. We go before God on a daily basis because as Jesus washed the feet of the already saved disciples, he was illustrating that very thing. Peter, you don't need a full bath. You're already clean from dead works, but I need to wash your feet on a daily basis or you can't have any part with me. This is the daily work. You want to part with me? You want your faith to be manifested as real? Have a daily cleaning with me. Be conformed to me. Strive in your life. Get rid of sin. Work toward righteousness. This is the Christian life. Well, you can't have that if you don't own it. You can't have that if you're not really willing to say, it's mine. I crossed the boundary. No one made me. <laughs> we, we do that often, you know. We will pick on the process. Why? Why do we pick on the process? Because we want to say that we were caused to sin, forced to sin, compelled to sin by what other people do to us. And actually, that's never true. You say, well, don't people do sinful things that can be frustrating and angering? Absolutely, they do. Absolutely. Don't people do it in such a way that it puts such intense pressure on you that your reaction is swift and fast and it just feels like they're the one that caused you to do it? That's true. The sin of provoking is a serious sin. God condemns it. You shouldn't provoke people. But love isn't easily provoked either. 1 Corinthians 13 and when you pull the trigger on a sin, you cannot say to Jesus Christ, but Lord, they did that to me. I am free and clear on this one because they forced me. You cannot say that. When you sin, you are guilty of your sin. It doesn't really matter what the reasons are. Once you pull the trigger, your finger's on the trigger. I crossed God's boundary. No one made me. I fell short. Nothing caused me. I committed evil. No one pushed me. Humility increases with that kind of ownership. If you want to nurture humility and crush pride, then when you sin, when you fail, humility feeds on mercy, mercy from God, mercy from others. Run for it. Ask for it. Plead for it. Ask it to be in proportion to who God is and his character. And then own whatever you need to own. Your transgression in fact, notice he says, wash me. That's a, that's a term in the original language that's sort of multiplying. You know, do it a lot. Multiply the washing until the, until the stain is completely gone. I like that. It's like you're being scrubbed by the work of God until the stain is gone. That was the imagery here. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, verse 2. And then down in verse 7, wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Do whatever it takes to cleanse me. Cleanse me with or purify me with hyssop. I shall be clean. That is the image of the blood stain splattering of everything human beings have touched in and around the altar. The altar is holy and pure. The mercy of God, the mercy seat, the holy of holies outside the holy of holies where they had the sacrifice. All the blood of the sacrifice had to be splattered all over that because everything in there was touched by the earth. And so it was contaminated with our sinfulness. And so he took the branch, he dipped it in the blood of the sacrifice and threw it everywhere where the contamination was. This is God, this is David's way of saying, Lord, take me through a process that washes my life and gets rid of this stain. Look, if you open yourself up to the process, you, you nurture humility. 
For David, that was a serious deal because for him, the consequences went on for decades in the kingdom. Eventually, the same sin showed up in his son, Solomon, who lost uh, the, the joy and the power of his reign as a king through his love of foreign women. And ultimately, the kingdom split because of it when Rehoboam took the throne. So David had consequences coming, but here he is, and all of Israel sings it after him that they want the Lord to do anything it takes to clean him up. So humility, beloved, it, it feeds on mercy. It increases with ownership, and it is proven through change, really. If you just wanted to add that, humility is proven through real change. You want to know where you're growing? Look for those places where you have opened yourself up to the Lord's work most. And that'll be the place where pride has the least hold. So when, when you sin, um, when the Lord convicts you, and there's conviction in your heart and in your conscience, do you admit it? When you admit it, do you complain that you weren't under better circumstances or you complain that God gave too much pressure or you complain that the power wasn't there or complain that you're not getting enough credit for the good things that you do or are you self-pitying saying that, you know, that uh, somehow you're less than Christ says you are? Is there some way that you look for some out? You nurture humility by reaching to God for mercy. Then let's look briefly at, in the remaining time, at this second problem, which is the, the forgiveness that we are to offer others. If you run to God for mercy, it surely is going to be the case that people, when they sin against you, are going to come to you and ask for mercy. What do you do? What do you do? Because it seems to me that if you're going to nurture humility in probably the greatest way, the most dramatic way, then you're going to have to be like Jesus in the most dramatic way. And Christ's most profound gift to us is pardon for our sin, the very reason David went to him. Now, turn to Matthew 18 for a moment, and we will finish there. And then next week, we're going to pick up this theme again and cover it at greater length. Here is where it gets very, very intense and practical, because Peter was asking Jesus, so you talk about forgiveness. We have laws about forgiveness in Israel. And they seem to be fairly generous. I mean, they weren't completely without a willingness to release someone from a debt, to pardon someone. They weren't without grace at any point in the laws of Israel and the traditions that they put over the top of them. And at one point in Jesus' ministry, Peter then says, verse 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? What, seven, he says, which, which is pretty generous. Uh, it was a multiplied amount. The law said three and you know, Peter's just trying to go the extra. Jesus says, I don't say to you up to seven times. I've never said that. It's not authority from, from the Father. But I'm telling you up to 70 times seven. And for this reason, or in other words, to explain why that's the case, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So here's, here's the spiritual reality put in a parable very simple, but two key things come out of this parable. Notice the parable. This king wished to settle accounts with his slaves, and when he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 
This is familiar ground to some of us who've studied this at length. And since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all he had in repayment to be made. Jesus sets the parable up to suggest that this is an unpayable debt. Your whole family is gone for the rest of their lives and for the rest of your life. You're locked up for the rest of your life. You'll never get those most precious relationships back. They are your payment. And even that is never going to be, there's never an end to that. You'll never see them again. He's setting up the story to make this an unpayable debt or obligation. Verse 26, the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, I'll repay you everything. Well, what do you mean? Do you have more than one lifetime? Because you're going to prison for life. Do you have more than one family, your most precious relationships? Once they're gone, that's all you have. That's your highest treasure. You paid your highest treasure and your whole life. What do you mean? I mean, again, the the strength of the story resides in the one point Jesus is going to make, and he is just building here. You have a slave that appears to be desperate. Notice verse 27, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That is absolutely shocking. Just for that? The Lord of that slave? That's his property. This is indentured servitude. This guy owes him. He has robbed him, according to the story. And he just says, out of compassion, I release you. You get your family. You get your life. You get your freedom. You have no obligation. You get your reputation. It's over. But that's not near as shocking as verse 28. That slave went out. Found one of his fellow slaves. So he's a peer. Oh my goodness. He's not even the ruler over this guy. This guy's not an indentured servant in his empire or his estate. All that was about to be gone. He gets it back. He doesn't have that. He has a fellow slave who owed him a hundred denarii. So basically, you know, three-fourths of a year or a half a year, less than half a year. He seized him and he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. His fellow slave fell to the ground. Jesus just drives the point home with the telling of the story. And he began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, I'll repay you. I mean, it must have just absolutely been riveting. Same words. Jesus puts the same words in this guy's mouth. Verse 30, he was unwilling. And he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. There's the twist on the story. Here's a guy who should have gone to prison without, every, without anything. He gets it all back. He takes a guy who owes him uh, uh, an incomparable amount. It's so far less, it's nothing. It's so as to be completely ridiculous. And yet he was unwilling. He throws this fellow slave in prison until he should pay back what was owed. And so when his fellow slaves saw what happened... They were deeply grieved. They reported to their Lord all that happened. And summoning him, his Lord said, and this should be no surprise, you wicked slave. Why? Why? He says why. I forgave you that debt. And on that basis, from the time you left our chamber, you stood in a state of pardon, absolute pardon. And you thought about going out and not 
hardening other people? Here's what you should have thought, he says. You should have had compassion. There it is. You should have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you. This isn't about whether the fellow slave asked him for mercy. This isn't even a transactional parable. It's just a parable with one point. You got pardoned this, that should secure your pardon of every other person around you because this does not compare to any of the debts owed to you and me. That's it right there. So nurturing humility comes when when an offense has happened, a very real offense against you, and it might be devastating. It might be someone who, who does something in your life for which there are permanent scars. From the small debt to the massive debt, Jesus' point is if you, before the king of your life, have been pardoned, that should secure forever a grace so full that it just splashes out on the release of everyone else's debts against you. Every one of them. That's it. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And so he was moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. In other words, punishment's coming to him. Why? Because he's not like God. He, he's, his heart isn't soft. He's, he's not, he's, he may even profess Christ and Christ's forgiveness, but he has no interest in, in seeing that through in his life. It's a false faith. The whole point is, Your heavenly Father will not have any compassion on you, verse 35, if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. From your heart. By the way, the parable isn't also establishing some conditional system here. When you and I get forgiveness from God, it isn't because we asked his forgiveness. That isn't it. That's not payment. Your asking God for forgiveness is not payment at all. That's not the ground of your pardon. Nor is the ground of your pardon some conviction you feel in your heart. That's not what makes God forgive you. What makes God forgive the sinner is Christ. The payment Christ made on the cross, that's the ground of our forgiveness. And so once I'm in Christ, that is the ground for all my pardon of everyone else. So when someone else slanders you, practically speaking, to nurture humility in your heart, you're going to have to say, Lord, that is a debt against me. They have slandered me. That's a sin against you and a sin against me. But how many times have I slandered your reputation with my sin and you have forgiven me freely on the basis of Christ? When someone betrays you, how many times have you betrayed Christ in in a way you could never have paid in eternity, and he's forgiven that betrayal. How many times have we sinned against Christ in word and thought, in deed, and he has pardoned us. In fact, I stand, Romans 5 says, in a state of pardon, a state of grace, covered with it at all times. It's never any different for me. I need the daily washing. My relationship with the Lord will involve chastening if I don't respond to him. But if I were to die in a moment when I have not come to God for mercy 
or in a moment when I haven't forgiven someone else, I enter into the presence of Christ in grace, forgiven, no condemnation. And yet, I want to go out in my heart at times and tell you you owe me a debt and you need to pay up. Because you did this, you said this, you acted this way, you betrayed over here, you slandered over here, you misrepresented over here, you didn't approach right over here, you had an attitude over here. And look at all those little debts that you've incurred. You haven't even paid one of them. Come on, pay up. Why are we doing that? Because Jesus says here that if you have been pardoned what you have been pardoned, a debt you couldn't pay in eternity. And it wasn't on the basis of how cool you were, good you were, righteous you were. It wasn't on the basis of even your confession or how sorry you felt or how many tears you shed. It wasn't even on the basis of that final time where you actually let go and you let God and it all came and salvation was there. and Finally, you surrendered to the Lord. It isn't even on all that. It's not based on any of those things. Whatever may have happened to you in your conversion, it is based upon and grounded in the work of Christ. And if he has pardoned you, then his is a permanent work. It never changes. You're always standing in his grace. He's always your advocate. And listen, if you died holding something against someone else in the moment and you went into the presence of Christ, you would be standing in grace even for the sin you committed in holding that sin against someone else. Beloved, what kind of hypocrisy is it for us to know that we have been pardoned by Christ and will not forgive someone else. You say, oh, but pastor, you have no idea how many years they have been sinning against me. Really? And how many years have you been not forgiving them and that's an offense against Christ, the Holy One who doesn't deserve your sin? Look, when I sin against another human being, I'm sinning against a peer in sin. Do you know that? Oh, yeah, I might, I might have not sinned in, against them in the way they've sinned against me. And so I might think I'm a judge at that point. But, you know, I'm not because I'm pointing to a sinner as a sinner. I'm never innocent, ever. Nor are you. Beloved, listen, if you want to, if you want to cultivate humility, if someone has a complaint against someone else, pardon. Colossians 3.13, you bear with one another, you forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. Doesn't mean there isn't something to transact, doesn't mean there isn't something to reconcile, doesn't mean there isn't conversation that has to be had, doesn't mean that relationships have to be talked about and restored as the forgiveness uh, works itself out in your relationships. Doesn't mean that all that doesn't have to happen. Conflict takes place. We have to resolve it. But the beginning of it is this. Someone has a debt against you. Uh, you. You can hold that against them. No, just release it. Release your right to get it, to get your pound of flesh, to judge on the ground that you stand in grace. You want to nurture humility. Here's the twin, twin issues. Don't hide your sin. Cry for mercy. Seek forgiveness when you sin from God and from others, and forgive, pardon, lavishly. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? Every time you sin, 
or, or sinned against, you just pray, Lord, help me remember right now in this very moment that I betray you every day and you've forgiven me. Help me to forgive. We're going to talk more about that next week in a little more specific and practical way, kind of get a handle on some of these difficult dynamics in that, but that'll be for next time. Let's pray.